Okay, this morning I am continuing with a series that we are doing, and this is all from the book of Isaiah. So we've been looking at different passages out of Isaiah that talk about the Messiah. And we've been basing this on one passage of Scripture as where our launching point is. That familiar passage that comes from Isaiah 9, verse 6, and many of you have maybe seen this come in Christmas cards or it's on Christmas decorations. It's one of those verses that we see so often from Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And we're looking then at those four titles that Isaiah gives to the Messiah and what that means. So that's what, we've been, what we have been tracing over during this time of Advent. And we have been doing that by looking at other passages in Isaiah. So specifically, particularly asking, what does Isaiah mean by those titles? When Isaiah calls the Messiah, the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, what does Isaiah have in mind? So other passages from Isaiah have been making that somewhat clear to us in revealing what this Messiah is all about in, in Isaiah's mind and in his writing as he goes through that. Today, then, we are up to Everlasting Father. And before I, I get us into the passage that we're reading, just a note of clarification, something that maybe we should put right up front about this title, Everlasting Father. Because let's acknowledge that you and I, we live in a, a period of the church where God, the Trinity, has been fully revealed to us. Right? That, that has come to light in the New Testament. That God is triune and, and we have the names of the Trinity. Right, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And maybe we look at this from Isaiah and we see everlasting Father. But wait, this is the Messiah. And we know that Messiah is the Christ, Jesus. And, and Jesus is the Son, the second person of the Trinity. So how is the title Father also applied? That seems a little confusing. But, but what we need to do is, is back up for a minute, right? Back up to the time of Isaiah. Back up to the time when Isaiah lived in. Let's just remind ourselves that in the Old Testament, especially during the time of Isaiah, they did not at that time have this fully developed idea of Trinity like we have today, like, like what we see revealed in the New Testament. So when Isaiah uses the title Everlasting Father, he's not thinking in his mind anything Trinitarian. And the people who would have originally read that would not have thought that either. So we need to push that one aside as we consider what this means. It's not a Trinitarian reference. But the term father, it's in Isaiah's mind here, does have a very particular meaning and application. And we'll get to that. We'll see what Isaiah means by that. So, considering then what it means for Isaiah to give the Messiah the title Everlasting Father. And today, I'm going to be reading from Isaiah 45 to give us a 
little bit of a glimpse into that. Isaiah 45, I will begin at verse 14. Before we read that together, um, say a prayer with me. Let's pray. God, as we open your word today, we acknowledge that this is your word, and it is spoken for our lives, to our hearts. So we pray that as we read these words, that your Holy Spirit would speak them to us in ways that have meaning and make sense to us to understand how you have revealed your love for us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, Isaiah 45. I'm just going to be reading verses 14 through 19. This is what it says. This is what the Lord says. The products of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and all those tall Sabians, they will come over to you and will be yours. They will trudge behind you, coming over to you in chains. They will bow down before you and plead with you, saying, Surely God is with you. There is no other. There is no other God. Truly, you are a God who has been hiding himself, the God and Savior of Israel. All the makers of idols will be put to shame and disgraced. They will go off into disgrace together. But Israel will be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You will never be put to shame or disgraced to ages everlasting. For this is what the Lord says, He who created the heavens, He is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret from somewhere in a land of darkness. I have not said to Jacob's descendants, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, I don't know who remembers Sesame Street. I had a show that seems like it's been on forever on PBS, and yeah, I know, I mean, if you're more parenting in today's age, you say, Bluey, nothing compares to Bluey, right? But you got to go back a few generations to remember Sesame Street. And one of the games that they played on Sesame Street, in fact, it it had a song that went with it. I'm not going to sing it. Um, You see the words here, though, that they would play this game on Sesame Street with a song that would go, one of these things is not like the others, One of these things just doesn't belong. Can you tell which thing is not like the others by the time I finish my song? Put up a picture of four things then, right? And three of these things belong together. Three of these things are kind of the same. Can you guess which one of these things doesn't belong here? Now it's time to play the game. You remember that one? Anyone? Okay, a few people. Well, it's it's one of those games they played with kids to get them thinking about identifying patterns. Right? That, that you would see things and you would identify patterns, but then they would throw one thing in there that does not fit the pattern. It's not at all like the rest. 
I think these verses from Isaiah 45, what we just read here today, this is Isaiah's way of playing one of these things is not like the others. He's putting that one out front. Let me remind us maybe just a little bit of of what I touched on briefly last week when we looked at Isaiah 40. Some of the, the larger picture of Isaiah, what Isaiah is up to in his writing. That Isaiah begins with this prophecy that is foretelling of the Babylonian captivity. He's talking about the way that the southern kingdom of Judah and the city of Jerusalem will be overrun by the Babylonians. It has not happened yet. It's still coming. But he talks about that in ways where now the people are frightened. They know because at this point, they've seen what's happened already to the northern kingdom of Israel with the Assyrian Empire conquering them. They know that their people have begun to fall and be scattered. They see it coming. Isaiah writes about that in the sections of Isaiah. That section of judgment goes from chapter 7 all the way to chapter 39, a long section of chapters about that. Not just judgment for Israel, but judgment for all the surrounding nations too. Isaiah 40 turns a corner. And that's what we looked at last week, a passage from Isaiah 40. Beginning in Isaiah 40, the prophet says, but there will be a Messiah. It's not hopeless. God will send a Savior. God has not forgotten his people. He begins that in Isaiah 40. And today, Isaiah 45, we're skipping just a little bit further into that, but still in that section. Now, let's remember some of the time frame around how that would work for the people of Israel who hear that message. Consider what it's like to live in their world. In the world at their time, all the surrounding nations had their own gods. And many of them were represented with idols. There's a reference in this passage today to idols. That's the world they lived in. All the various nations had their own gods. And there was this, what looked like a seemingly endless menu of gods to choose from. Here's how they worked that through their worldview at the time. That they would have said about that, that whichever God happened to be most powerful at the moment, right, most dominant at the moment, that would be expressed by whatever nation worshipped that God dominating all the others. So, in the world at that time, there were kingdoms that battled each other and armies would fight each other and kings would fight against other kings and whoever the winner happened to be at the moment, they interpreted that in their world as being, well, the god of that king must have then also beaten all the other gods. That's how they thought through how the gods worked in their time. The people of Israel, they lived during that time, and and that worldview would have had an influence on them, right? It is very likely and possible that the people of Israel who lived during the time of Isaiah would have thought that way. Yes, we worship the Lord. We worship the God of Israel. But somewhere in their mind, they hold on to what the rest of the world was saying around them, that The Lord, their God, was just one God out of many gods. And the Lord, their God, like the rest of the world would have said, pretty much has no more or less power than any of the other gods. 
And all of these conflicts between nations would be represented then in, so which God is most powerful at the moment, right now? That's how the world and the worldview of the nations around them worked at this time. So, follow this one through then. So, when Isaiah says a time is coming when Babylon is going to destroy you and you're going to be taken away into captivity, the people of Israel would have interpreted that. That would have meant to them, so the Lord is going to lose. The God of Babylon is going to win. That's how that would have filtered into their minds. And into that, into this idea of, you know, there's all these other gods out there and they're all the same, basically. And they just sort of take turns being who's on top at the moment. And to that, Isaiah says, no, 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 no. The Lord, the God of the Bible, the God of Israel, is not like the others. What you think of as it's all the same and it's just sort of which God at the moment happens to be on top of the pile, king of the mountain, it's not like that. Because our God is not like the others. And that's what Isaiah is getting at in this. In fact, did you notice, uh, we only read a few verses here today, but in those few verses, three different times Isaiah repeats the phrase from God, there is no other. There is no other like God. Twice, the first two times that it shows up in this passage, it is declared by, who says it? The people of the other nations. God's not the one declaring it. Israel is not the one declaring it. The people of the other nations see it. They're the ones who declare it. And then the third time, a little further down the passage, God himself says it. That I am the Lord. There is no other. That's challenging a worldview that the people of Israel held during that time. Right? This would have been information that, all right, I say that to us here today, and we think, well, yes, of course, we know, because we read the Bible and we understand and believe that. But that would have been something different for the people at that time to hear and to know and to understand. So, in that then, Isaiah is expressing something about the Messiah, how the Messiah is going to come, but it will be different. It will be like nothing else they have ever seen. So how does that one play forward then? Well, track it through a little bit of this passage. That what Isaiah begins with in verse 14 begins with what have struck them as familiar language. The products of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush, all of these things, they're going to come to you. In chains, they will come to you. All right, that's a reference to spoils of war. Now, that, that would have connected. That would have made sense. That's what they would have understood, right? That when, when their Messiah, their Savior comes, what it meant to them, what they were expecting, what they would have thought would have been, it's a military victory. And the Messiah, the one that God sends to save, they're expecting someone like King David would have been. Someone who is a conqueror and conquers the other nations and carries all the spoils of war back. That's what they expect. But then comes this line that all the others say. 
Surely God is with you. There's no other. No other God like that. Now Isaiah is tipping into something new, something different. There is only one God, that the Lord is it. There is no other besides that. That means that the game is changing, at least from what they thought or they expected or they experienced, that this Messiah, this Savior, would do something that none of the others before have ever done would show up in ways that were completely unexpected or anything they would have thought of. Carry it forward then in verses 15 and 16 to what Isaiah says. Now, this one's a little confusing, right? So here in verse 15, Truly, you are a God who's been hiding himself. But wait, you remember we read just a few verses down. God says, I haven't been hiding. I'm not doing things in the darkness. I'm not doing things in secret. All right, Isaiah, make up your mind. Which one is it? Is God hiding or is God not hiding? Let's make some sense out of that one, okay? It appears to everyone else as though God is hiding when they are expecting something that God is not. Okay? They're expecting for the Messiah to show up as this conqueror who would annihilate all the other nations. That's what they're looking for. But that's not how the Messiah is going to show up. That's not who the Messiah will be. And so when the Messiah comes, because they're looking for something else, it will appear as though it's hidden. It will sort of sneak in beside them because that's not what they're looking for. It's not what they're expecting. Uh, we, we can fast forward into the Gospels here, right? Because we know that this is a passage that foretells the coming Messiah, the Christ, in the Gospels. And, and we know that story, if we've read that one before, that Jesus comes born to an ordinary family in a stable in Bethlehem an ordinary city. Nobody expected that. Nobody was looking for a Messiah to come like that. Even though angels appeared in the sky and sang and announced this birth to the shepherds. Even though these nobles, these magi, these wise men from distant lands come and gather and find Jesus. Even though those things happen, it's not hidden. It's not that God kept it a secret, but people weren't looking for that. That was not the Messiah they expected. But that's how God shows up. That's how the Messiah comes. The one who puts all the other gods to shame, to disgrace. That's how God is revealed. And that story plays through, through the life of Jesus. That Jesus continues to do things unexpectedly, right? No one expected that the Messiah would be one who goes to a cross. No one expected that 
the Messiah, God's Savior, the one who was going to save his people, the one who was going to save the world, is defeated by being put in a tomb. Is defeated. Do you see the connection in the narrative here? Because in the time of Isaiah, those people that Isaiah was prophesying to, when they heard that prophecy, you know what? You're going to be overrun and the Babylonians are going to take you and your city is going to be destroyed. Their thought was, it looks to us like this Messiah, right? Our God, lost. Fast forward to the Gospels. Jesus is nailed to a cross he breathes his last. He's placed in a tomb. And everyone around thought he lost. The narrative plays the same way. It looks like God lost. We see that all the way back in Isaiah. But what Isaiah tips us off to way back then is, but that's just what it looks like not hidden though you were just looking for something else you were expecting something different than what God was really up to that when God the Messiah Christ went to the cross that he took our sins with him nailed there that's where the victory happened that's where we found new life. When the righteousness, the perfect righteousness of Christ was placed upon us at the cross when Jesus took our guilt and our sin. And when Jesus rose from the grave, that victory was certain and sealed in a way that everyone around saw. Right? There were witnesses who testified to it. And a movement then began with the New Testament church in that. The nations saw it. And those who heard about it said, this is so different from anything we've ever heard about how gods are supposed to work. There's nothing else like this. There is no other, no other like this God. You see how Isaiah is tracing that forward for us. And something to where People should have known. They should have seen it coming. But they didn't. Are we all that different? Right? I mean, what, what do we look for from a Savior? Uh, what, what do we look for from a life that experiences victory like that? That maybe we look for those big, unmistakable moments too, but the story of Scripture from the Old Testament and into the New Testament reminds us just how often God shows up in the places we least expect to find Him. That's where God is at work. In those places where you would not expect to see God. In those places where it looks like, to all other appearances, it looks like God's not winning. That God is being defeated. But that's where God shows up. That's where He comes into the world. 
Isaiah talks about it in the Old Testament. The Gospels talk about it in the New Testament. In those corners of life where where you and I feel the most defeated, in those corners, that's where God shows up. That's where the Messiah comes. That's where we see God revealed to us in that. And Isaiah says, you know, this isn't, this isn't a temporary thing. There's another distinction to make here, right? Because let's take it back to that mindset of the Old Testament, right? The, those people in Isaiah's time who thought, you know what? I mean, this is sort of like whoever happens to be the hold the heavyweight boxing championship of the time, whoever holds the title belt, yep, you're the champion for now, but you know it's only a matter of time till someone else comes along and knocks you out and takes over the championship. That's still the mindset that we're thinking. Okay, so God shows up unexpectedly. Yeah, okay, but they still live in a world where they think, and that's just temporary, right? That just has its moment and then some other God comes along or something else happens or it doesn't stick or whatever. And Here's where Isaiah speaks further into that. It's not just that God is going to show up in a way that we've never expected. It is not just that, but it will be everlasting. Salvation that comes with this Messiah is not temporary. It's not fragile. It's not a fleeting moment. But it stays. Twice, he says here in this verse, everlasting. Well, it shows up in English as being that way. In Hebrew, it's actually two different words. The first one is a Hebrew word for everlasting, which means permanent. It's something that is permanent, established permanently, has always been, has always existed, and always will exist. That's the first everlasting in that verse. The second everlasting is a different Hebrew word, and it's one that means long duration, something that lasts a really, really long time, or often that's a Hebrew word that's um, used to express a very long road, like a long journey, a long way to travel. Both of those things, Isaiah is making the point. This salvation that's coming from the Messiah is not just a blip on the radar. It's not just a moment that's here today and you know what? It can be lost tomorrow. That's not how this Messiah works, but it's everlasting. He is the everlasting Father. Let's get back to that one, Father. Not a Trinitarian reference, but Father. The Hebrew word for Father is something that didn't just mean your dad, but Father in Hebrew is something that expressed all the preceding generations. It would be the same word that you would use to refer to your great-grandfather and your great-great-grandfather and great-great-great, and you get the idea. On it goes. All of the ancestors before you in your line had that title, Father. So when Isaiah says everlasting Father, it's not just a reference to one dad, but it's a reference to the lineage, the family lineage that is established and can never be taken away. Isaiah is talking about something that has a permanence to it that comes by the promise of God. That's how God's Messiah comes to us. Something that's not just this momentary blip, 
but it is established forever in his lineage. Now, father is also a family term. A family of a father who loves the children. Love is associated with this. Isaiah is drawing on that a bit here. That the salvation of God, the Messiah, not a vicious warrior who conquers all others, but a loving father who extends love. Not just for a moment, not just for a season, not just for now, but everlasting, permanent, for eternity, can never be taken away. Consider how in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul talks about that, okay? So this is coming from 1 Corinthians 13. What Paul says about that love, here's what Paul says about love. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking, not easily angered, keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Look at this. Love never fails. Now look at what the Apostle Paul's doing, right? Pull this one to Isaiah in his time. That question of, so in a world where things are temporary and it seems like God is hidden because that's what they were seeing. This, this Messiah that we were expecting appears hidden because we didn't understand. Now look at what Paul says about God's love in that. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I put ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I only know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. This everlasting Father, this Messiah that Isaiah talks about, is the one who comes with a love like that. A love that changes the way we see the world around us into something we were never expecting. Maybe we never saw coming. That is the Messiah who arrives at Christmas. That is the Messiah who is our everlasting Father and holds on to this covenant love that can never fail and never let go. And that is why 
he shall be called Everlasting Father, the Messiah whose love for his people never lets go. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the gift of your word and the way that you reveal in your word your love. And God, we pray that as we wait once again to celebrate Christmas,